Hello and welcome to Housewives and Me, a podcast about why we love the Real Housewives. I'm your host, Connor Bean, and thank you very much for joining me for another exciting, and I would say, in my own personal opinion, very juicy episode of the podcast. Uh, We'll get to our amazing interview in just a second. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's interview with Anna Peel is a real treat. She wrote a a piece for Vulture slash slash New York magazine recently called The Soul of Bravo, which is one of my favorite pieces of writing about Real Housewives I've ever read. And Anna has so much amazing gossip and behind the scenes tidbits and all sorts of stuff about the shows that we're going to get into in just a second. That interview is a little bit longer than some of the ones I've run recently, but I still wanted to get into this because this trailer came out last week, but I already had the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills premiere discussion, and I didn't want to like have the episode feel really top-heavy. So very quickly, I'm going to get into the trailer for Real Housewives of Potomac Season 6, which is coming back in July. It'll be on Hey You on July the 12th. And I know we're looking forward to lots of exciting things this summer. <laughs> but this is one of them for me. <laughs> real life is back, but so are Real Housewives. Oh my God. If, if that should be used in advertisements. Anyway, let's get into this Housewives of Potomac trailer. I'm really digging this so far. I feel like we've lots of interesting stuff. I loved the Desperate Housewives soft focus. Uh, Wendy's voiceover setting up that all is not quite what it seems in Potomac. Because I think one of the things about Potomac is when it started, everybody was like, wait, this is not like, you know, a super recognizable name the way New York, Atlanta, Beverly Hills are as places to kind of the casual viewer. But I think leaning into Potomac having its own kind of world and rules and kind of giving it a sense of setting is really great because that is what makes Housewives shows that each one is set in such a specific kind of place. We get to meet the new cast member, Mia, who seems really you know interesting and like not afraid to get in the mix we we do learn that she was put in foster care as a child and we see her talking to her mother about that we it seems that she's kind of a friend for Karen this season from what I've been reading she's kind of coming in as a an ally to Karen which I guess Karen kind of needs Karen and Ray may or may not be having more moments there is a scene where she looks at a text on Ray's phone and asks who's messaging which could just be like an editing trick and it's like, you know, someone from the office or something. Who knows? Ashley and Michael still seem to be having trouble. I mean, not surprised there. The storyline about Chris managing Candace's burgeoning music career is interesting because that sounds on paper a bit Joe and Melissa setup style. But also that is a storyline I do want to see play out because I do think that's going to be, you know, interesting. Because Candace, even though I don't always like her, she is good television. Robin seems to be struggling with depression, which, I mean, join the club, sis. It's been a long 15, 16 months. But all jokes aside, you know, it does seem like she's having a tough time. And there's a kind of a quote from Giselle about her husband saying that, you know, well, her, are they married yet? I don't know. Her fella saying, you know, he can't say that he doesn't find you attractive. That's not, that's not on. So it does seem like we're going to have more trouble in paradise at Robin and Juan this season. Giselle and Jamal, the long distance relationship is not, working out for Giselle from the looks of things in this trailer. And also, speaking of Giselle, Wendy is kind of putting the foot down with Giselle because we see these kind of scenes of Wendy and Eddie seemingly having kind of a tough time in their marriage and Giselle talking about the, quote, Eddie rumours, which Wendy is not a fan a fan of talking about. So Wendy is letting Giselle have it in this trailer in terms of, like, don't speak out of line about my husband, basically. So that's interesting. I wonder, is Giselle going to lean fully into villainry this season because I really like Giselle flaws and all and 
Speaking of villainry, there is a <laughs> reveal about Giselle in this week's episode of this podcast that uh, is sort of making me see her in a new light as well. But I do enjoy her in one way on the show, but I do think there is this sort of slightly devious thing she does in terms of her relationship with the women. So I'm curious where that might go. We do see an iconic shot of Mia throwing a salad at Candace. So I do think that Candace might have met her match in the, you know, popping off stakes on Potomac, which I'm all about, to be honest with you. And of course, it ends on a hilarious shot of, I love a comedy cut to in a Housewives trailer, just Giselle sipping her mojito (laughs) for emphasis at the very end. So my feelings are, bring it on. This seems like a really promising trailer. They had such a great fifth season and they went back to work pretty soon after doing the reunion, which was explosive um, last season. So I'm just excited. I feel like we're going to be in the the golden age because we're going to have New York, Beverly Hills and Potomac at the same time. (sighs) This makes me so happy. (laughs) It makes me, it just makes me so happy to think that we're going to have so much great housewives. (laughs) Uh, Summer, that's my summer. I'm telling you now, I, I can't even lie. So that is the Housewives of Potomac trailer. You can check it out. It's on the Hey You social media. That's probably one of the easiest places to find it. It is coming to our screens Monday, July 12th or Sunday, July 11th if you're in the US. If I was in the US, I'd be the whole day of July 11th. My, son, my weekend would be pivoted around that if I was there. So that is Housewives of Potomac season six. Very excited to get into that. But for now, let's get into it. Our amazing guest, Full of scalding hot tea, I do think. I will say this interview was recorded a little while ago. It was before Beverly Hills had come back and New York had come back. So we kind of talk in those terms. But So there's one or two things that I think have kind of actually occurred on the show since. But it's definitely got lots of insider gossip. And I think lots of promising things ahead for Beverly Hills New York if this interview is anything to go by. So without any further ado, here is the amazing Anna Peel on Housewives and Me. My guest today is a writer whose work has appeared in Men's Health, New York Magazine, GQ, Cosmopolitan and Esquire, and recently wrote which is what is probably one of the best pieces I've ever read about The Real Housewives. So I'm very excited to chat to her about that and our favourite shows today. Anna Peel, welcome to Housewives and Me. Thank you so much for having me, Connor. I do want to know how you just got into Housewives as a fan in the first place. I started watching with OC, but I wasn't a mega fan. I think I started really getting into it. I I was always really into the shifting dynamics between the women, like how Lori used to work for Vicky, but then Lori married somebody who's richer than Vicky. So all of a sudden Vicky's status got lowered. And I think I like became a diehard um, in the New York season where Bethany's pregnant and she's walking across the bridge with Ramona and Ramona is just dressing her down and telling her that like her marriage is going to fail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yeah. And that no one's ever going to love her. And then I had seen it after the fact, after Bethany had gotten married and her business was taking off and suddenly she was in a higher status position, both like in the show and real life than Ramona. And so I love that about Real Housewives, like when things just flip. That's such a a great point how, and particularly when fame comes in the picture, mm-hmm. like their status amongst each other and in the public eye changes and that even if they pretend it doesn't, it always impacts the shows. Yes. Like that was something I was so keenly aware of on SLC this season where Heather Gay seemed sort of low status in the group and like 
very much seemed to feel like she needed to get everyone to like her. And I was watching and I was like, oh my God, everyone's going to fucking love this lady. And then by the reunion, she's like, yeah, like Rihanna's DMing me. So um, <laughs> I don't really need to impress you people anymore. Which, you know, in a way, wouldn't we all be like that? <laughs> oh, of course, obviously. <laughs> You wrote an amazing article for New York Magazine, which people can read on Vulture.com, called The Soul of Bravo, which was kind of a piece about, I suppose, the reckoning around race and diversity and escapism versus accountability that's kind of come up around Real Housewives and Southern Charm and Vanderpump Rules, basically all the shows that are the linchpins of the Bravo network. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to kind of chat city by city about your feelings on those cities and some little bits from your piece about those cities. But just that article in general, how did it come about and how was it to write? Because it's a very particular take on a very beloved kind of pop culture property. Well, thank you for saying such nice things about it. Um, it was very much my dream assignment. Um, and so my editor at New York, Marissa Carroll, who's incredible, reached out to me and was like, you know, Bravo in the last year has like the, the real world has permeated the world of reality TV in a way that it never had before. And she's like, would you want to do a piece about that kind of reckoning within the network? And I was like, absolutely. And so as I, so I, first I reached out to um, Bravo and their uh, head of communications and I kind of, you know, I told her I was a real fan and, you know, just sort of what I was thinking. And I thought initially that the piece was going to be more just like how much they decided to put on the shows without sort of realizing that this moral reckoning from a network that had always kind of been amoral, right? Like they kind of throw stuff out there and they're like, you decide how to feel about these people. And I didn't sort of realize that sort of like this kind of happened to Bravo. Like they didn't really want this. It wasn't like, okay, like we really are like hoping to show like BLM, Black Lives Matter stuff on Atlanta because like that'll make us look good or whatever. Like it was just going on and they had to figure out a way to incorporate this stuff on these shows in a way that was still entertaining and like obviously they've dealt with like crazy dark stuff before i mean on beverly hills literally there was a suicide and like there's been drug abuse and there's been you know children have been taken away there's been some crazy dark stuff but this is sort of the first time where i think they've dealt with things that had a broader societal resonance um and it just sort of was like are they equipped to do that? And do we want that from them? So that's what the piece was. For sure. And I think you've hit on something that's very interesting about these shows that they flirted with before, like, for example, the 2016 election and Trump mm. versus Clinton and how that came up on New York, but not in other cities. And like how the shows sometimes rise up to quote unquote, meet the moment, but oftentimes they exist in a bubble of their own because it's also a franchise ostensibly, as you mentioned in your piece, about wealthy people behaving badly. And so their priorities are not maybe to be on Twitter engaging in quote-unquote discourse or whatever. But you said there that like, the piece kind of showed you that Bravo had to kind of address some of this stuff. Was it a hard piece to write in terms of like, you you went to the network, you know, and their comms team, but were they a bit hesitant to talk about this? Because I would imagine they want to come across well in discussing yeah. this because if they don't, it will be more backlash, never mind what has or hasn't happened on the shows. Absolutely. But I think that because I am a genuine fan, 
Like yeah. It wasn't just someone coming in and being like, oh, Bravo hasn't been doing enough and now they're trying to do something. And like, like, can they even do it? You know, yes. it was like me coming in and being like, I want these shows to succeed and kind of dealing with my own feelings as, as a fan of like, you know, because people say like, oh, I don't want to see that. You know, sometimes I don't want to see that. <laughs> and <laughs> so it's it's figuring out a way to address these issues that need to be addressed, but in a way that makes sense in the in the Bravo universe and with the Bravo tone. Because I like when they addressed the 2016 election, I hated that. And I was very, yes, I hated it. Like, and I, I used to, like, I loved Carol. I was very much for Hillary in that election and very much appalled when Trump won. But I would, when we had to watch her canvassing, (laughs) I mean, you know, and when we watched the election party and I had to relive that night, I was like, I don't, I don't want to watch this. This is just bumming me out. I'm already living this shitty like Trump presidency I don't want to think about it again and it's funny because two things one is that you know it wasn't just that Carl canvassed and they had the election party it's that as you say it's not like the same week you as a person went through that you know living in America it was watching it nine months later and then that's also when COVID ended up being a big part of certain shows this season you're like we are barely out of this even on a small level and you want me to go back to like March 2020 I don't think so like it just it, it is a tricky thing to balance of course. And I think that some of the shows have done that. Well, um, I spoke with the uh, the person who like knows about all of Bravo's data, Dave Kaplan, who is just, he was, I talked to so many housewives. I talked to Andy. I talked to all these people who I was so excited to talk to. And I talked to Dave and it was like, I was, it was like I was talking to Rihanna. I was like, oh my God. But he said like all of the shows that dealt with that kind of stuff, that dealt with COVID, that dealt with race had ratings dips. Um, and I don't know whether that's just because they haven't quite figured it out yet or whether, especially with COVID, um, you know, we are still living it. But the shows that did so well last year and this year were Potomac which like didn't deal with it. And then New Jersey, which is, was, oh, so sorry. So Potomac was filmed before the pandemic yes. or during the pandemic. Jersey was filmed during the pandemic, but I'm from New Jersey, so I can say this. New Jersey, like parts of New Jersey exist in a sort of like, almost like apolitical space where those women for, you know, bless them, were able to live their lives without kind of dealing with COVID, you know, like, there's not a lot of COVID talk on the show. They're not, but they're not wearing masks. They're not doing PPE. Like I'm sure they have internal testing. Like all the production companies are obviously taking safety precautions, but it is very much not a part of the show or the narrative, even though it's a part of the world, which is interesting. And it kind of belies something that audiences had told um, Bravo and their data collection, which is that they want to see the women we're putting on PPE, they want to know that they're being safe. I guess that's kind of a big part of this whole thing, which is that sometimes we don't know what we want. We say yeah. we want something and then we see it and we're like, oh, this is kind of a drag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's also, that's what's so funny about because New Jersey's, they're doing a slightly shorter season. There's plenty of great storylines and drama happening. So like the show is, is very, I guess, enjoyable in that regard but it is funny sometimes when you see them like wearing a mask to like leave the car that's dropping to dinner and they wear a mask to meet the host in the restaurant and then they sit down the mask goes off and you go that is literally the only nod to COVID whereas in other shows yeah 
it's like a sixth cast member or whatever. Like it, it Jersey. Yeah. I have noticed that as someone who isn't from Jersey, I was like, do they have COVID in here? Like, just, <laughs> yes. I mean, it was a beautiful scene. Like that beautiful scene with you know Teresa doing the ceremony for her dad that had passed, which is very emotional. But at one point, I did think there were a lot of people on this mm. at this beach. I was like, what's the uh, protocol for this? So yeah, it's kind of the escapism versus reality factor, like. It comes into play a lot, I think. And it really, oh God, it really grated on me. Of course, everything Brandy does grates on me. But it really made me angry when she went to Florida. And then she came back and she was like making a joke out of wearing yes. a, a mask. And then, of course, she wound up getting COVID later. But, you know, for the reunion. <sighs> Dallas just... Dallas and those face shields, I like that's a show in itself. It's like who told Dallas and Atlanta the face shields? I was like, these don't work. What are you doing? Um, it's interesting. I what was the guy's name? Dave Kaplan? Did you say? Yeah, Dave Kaplan. He is quoted in your piece, and I'm sure he gave you tons of amazing material. He mentions kind of, he mentioned to you that the I guess demographics of people who watch Bravo in the U.S. and then also the kind of political leaning. So Ooh. I think he was saying that for New York self-identified liberals, right? And then people who are more left-leaning like Atlanta and then Jersey seem to skew but more conservative. Like, was were you surprised when he told you, okay, this is how audiences who root for this show feel about this thing? It did not surprise me to hear that Dallas and New Jersey are more conservative, that Potomac and Atlanta are least conservative and that New York has the most self-identified liberals living in New York. I'm like, that's definitely, we are definitely want everyone to know that we're liberal. Yeah. Um, it, that, it, what was really interesting to me was he, I mean, that, that's all true, but uh, the franchise uh, below deck is as important to the network as Real Housewives. They, it gets as many viewers as Real Housewives do. Below deck, below deck med, Beverly Hills and Atlanta are the top rated series. I've actually, do you know what's funny? So here, you probably, maybe you've noticed this, like from other podcast episodes that there was basically a bunch of uh, Broadway shows put on Netflix here this time last year. And we have a dedicated streaming service that's NBCU owned that's been around for years as well. But I've noticed just kind of anecdotally, obviously people getting into Housewives, but also realizing Below Deck was already big, but there has been so many people in the last year who I don't think would ever go near Real Housewives, but love Below Deck. And you even see the Watch What Happens Live like ratings when they have Below Deck people on are insane. So that's interesting, but also kind of not surprising in a way. Well, it's the only show that it's that they have that like straight men watch. Frankly, it's the yeah. highest um, show that uh, with co viewing, so it's like couples watching it together. Which makes sense to me. Like I, the I have straight male friends who the only Bravo show they watch is that, and you know Top Chef. But that was fascinating because I don't watch Below Deck because I find it boring. I don't like. I don't want to know what's going on on you know a luxury yacht. I want I want drama. <laughs> I feel like you probably said that to Dave Kaplan. Listen, Kaplan, I don't watch Below Deck. <laughs> <laughs> I literally said it to every, like, there were certain things that I just said to every single person. I was like, number one, get Lala on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I want yes. her there. Number two, Michael Darby is a maniac. Please get him off TV. I, I sort of had known this, but I didn't know it was universally true. They none of the husbands are paid to appear on this show. So Michael Darby is embarrassing himself 
for free. That's I could just think about that fact all day. (laughs) We have lots more to discuss. So what I'm going to do is kind of just go through some of the cities that I know you watch and that you also spoke to people for in the piece. Because I know you mentioned to me when we were setting this up that there's lots of people quoted in the article, but you spoke to other housewives where it just didn't make the cut because I'm sure you had tons of material. So let's talk about Beverly Hills, which is, as we're chatting, is coming back soon. But by the time this comes out, may have even kicked off for season 11. Um, what are your thoughts on that as a city? You mentioned there it's it's rating very well for Bravo. And I know you spoke to Kyle and Garcelle for your piece as well. Yeah. So Andy Cohen said Beverly Hills is all about appearances. And mm. the housewives, I, Kyle and Garcelle both said that that was true. It's like they're very, a lot of them are actresses or former actresses or former aspiring actresses. And yeah. they are very conscious of how they appear on camera. Um, and in those early seasons, they were, it was kind of, even with all the artifice and the, you know, putting on airs and stuff like that, there was some real shit. Kim Richards' addiction issues and Russell's suicide and the domestic abuse that Taylor was yeah. going through. That was very real. Um, and when I talked to Kyle, she was sort of, you know, saying that the newer housewives don't pull their weight, you know, like she's like, she basically was saying like, I went through shit on camera. That was real shit with my family. She didn't talk to her, her sisters, you know, like there were things that were crazy. And so she said that, you know, she, the newer housewives kind of come on and they want to look good and they sort of haven't gone through the gauntlet of showing those shitty parts of their lives. Um, She called it she said they want to come in with a very filtered version of themselves and not show any of what's really happening in their lives. Um, as you'll recall, we didn't see Sutton's family last year. But then she did say that well, you're going to hear about Erica's divorce. You're really going to hear it. But I'm I'm nervous about that. Everyone has assured me that we're going to hear a lot about it. Andy said it's going to be great. But I just feel like there's so much legally that she can't talk about that it's going to be a lot of like when she released those text messages from the like, yes, and you then know, deleted them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the 1997 like Nokia, where I'm like, wow, this is <laughs> yeah. some ice cold tea, Erica. That Tom <laughs> cheated on you like 24 years ago. Um, but I fear that that's what's going to happen, and I hope that it's not because I love Beverly Hills. That's interesting that Kyle basically called out like kind of newer people on the show so when you spoke to Garcelle for the piece I know that didn't those quotes didn't make the final Mm -hmm. cut but did anything Garcelle say contrast that from Kyle because in a way Garcelle is the most recent one and didn't get to show I feel like as much of herself but I do feel like is game to go there as well well what Garcelle and I went up talking about and what I had sort of observed was that last year Beverly Hills didn't get into race really and so Mm -hmm. The casts that are integrating now, you know, they're integrating at a time when you can't not have these conversations. Like, I'm sure you've heard that there's like a lot of shit that goes down with Ebony joining New York. Yes. As the first black cast member. Um, But we really didn't see that with Garcelle. And the times that we heard her speaking about race, you know, it was in the context of her family. It was when she had that amazing meal with her black friends. Um, who I know she has advocated for at least one of them joining the cast and so far has been unsuccessful. But mm-hmm. we didn't really see her talking about race with her white castmates. And um, that changes 
this year. And it's funny too, I'm just even thinking now, like you spoke to Cole, who's kind of a central figure on Beverly Hills and has been there since the beginning. And then you spoke to Garcelle, who's the newer person who it sounds like goes to more personal places around race and that kind of conversation this year. But Garcelle and Kyle did butt heads last season. And I do think that at times Garcelle was sort of implying that Kyle was playing the the white lady victim card, yeah. that subtle microaggression. I got the sense she was alluding to that kind of microaggression thing that can happen where white women can say stuff with a dot, dot, dot that implies a person of color is maybe being like you know awful to them but it's actually kind of it's not happening so I'm just so curious how they'll interact because I feel like the reunion with them was all a bit like there's more to this than we're getting well she did say I was like who are you actually friends with she said she loved uh Garcelle and she said she loves Kathy Hilton she she's obviously friends with Sutton she, she and Kyle have gotten closer and she and Erica oh. have gotten closer and she said that's it <laughs> <laughs> for the yeah, so I can hear her saying that. I'm for, so excited now for the season. Mm-hmm. Forget about. Oh no, sorry. She said, "Oh God, please put Dorit in there too, because I'll hear it." So. <laughs> Garcelle, I felt like you and I we were friends. Garcelle, <laughs> that's. I can actually see that scene as well. Okay, well that's. That's interesting. <laughs> that gives us something to look forward to, Beverly Hills. And um, we we just mentioned there New York. Obviously, we have Ebony K. Williams joining the cast, who is the first kind of first time a black woman is joining the cast full time on that show. I know Brashawn Shaw film stuff, and I think is in a friend of position this season. It was interesting. You interviewed Ebony for your piece, and you also spoke to Leah McSweeney, who was mm-hmm. new last year. Love and her. I thought it was yeah. I thought Leah kind of contextualized the sort of hyper whiteness of New York really well when she kind of just said we're dealing with people who just don't have black women in their friend group who just actually it's not their day to day but we're having this conversation worldwide so we have to have it on the show I mean what did you kind of learn chatting to Leah and Ebony well Ebony was just like I'm not coming on to teach people which I think wound up being tricky um for Dr. Tiffany Moon on Dallas and um, Leva Bonaparte on Southern Charm, where they were these like women of color who had to come in and sort of like explain racism to like (laughs) people who are clueless. Um, And I don't, I'm sure they didn't think of themselves as teachers or whatever, but Ebony was very much like, that is not what I'm doing. She's like, I'm just going to say how I feel about stuff. And she is a hoot. I started talking to her and I was like, oh, is she, like, she kind of going to be too like smart and like intellectual? But it's so funny. Um, I think Andy said this because I was sort of talk, talking about um, Dr. Wendy Acefo and Dr. Tiffany Moon and kind of yes. like, well, kind of you're bringing in all these like really smart women. It's like, does it sort of make sense with these other kind of women who they're joining? And he was like, if you're on the show, you're not too good to be on the show. And I was like, that's, yeah. yes, of course. That's a great point. But she, no, she is a spitfire. You know, I was asking her how she got in the show. And she was like, she's like, well, you know, I was sort of involved with this May-December romance. And he used to take me shopping. And we'd go to this place. And the guy who owned the place, you know, the store was friends with, you know, Andy. And he recommended me. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, I'm like, already, like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. This is, like, you know, going to be like a pedantic thing where we're, you know, having conversations that don't make sense in this context we have like a woman who's like she has so many facets to her and like one of the facets is that she 
you know, wants to talk about things that are real to her. Being a black woman is part of her experience. And she's going to go head to head and toe to toe with anybody who, you know, says something that she doesn't think is right. I mean, you just know, you just know from Ramona's tagline alone, because when we're talking, I, I don't know if you, I, maybe you got a screener or saw the premiere or like, I've seen nothing of this new season of New York, but I just know Ramona's going to put her foot in it. Oh, more than once the, per episode, you know, like the tagline of, oh, I, I don't mean what I say, whatever it's like, <laughs> I say the wrong, it's not how I say it, it's what I mean. I'm like, oh, here oh. we go. Like they're setting Ramona up already. Like it's just uh, not going to go well. That's so Trumpian. I like hate that. <laughs> like, mm. Don't take me literally. But She probably picked it up at Mar-a-Lago, but we'll, that's all we'll say about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you meant, you talked to Leah as well. How was she to... I guess interview but also I feel like she's in such an interesting position she had such a home run of a debut season and I I'm curious if she'll have the second season Housewives curse befall her this year Dave Kaplan the data guru did tell me that she was one of the highest testing first season cast members of all time and Leah's very cognizant of that and so she's nervous about living up to that and I had asked her you know like are you like, I think that the thing that people responded to about her was that she was such a Greek chorus. Um, She was so self-aware, but also just so uninhibited that it was like such an interesting combination. And she responded to everybody just like, you know, she was, she's so pragmatic, but also so wacky. I don't know. She's just like this wonderful mix of things. And she's so funny, but I was like, are you, you know, afraid that sort of, if you stay in this ecosystem that you will no longer be aware that it's crazy and be able to comment on that, that you'll just become one of them. And she was like, of course, you know, she's like, if she's on the show for 10 years, she's like, I'm going to be out of touch probably. And like, she told me, you know, like she got some money. And so she got some work done. You know, she got new boobs. She got a nose job in between seasons. She said, I'm a housewife now, bitches. <laughs> like, she said, I'm so lucky I'm in this position, so I got boobs to match it. And, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I can hear her saying that. We touched on Salt Lake City briefly, and it was interesting to me because mm. you got into sort of the moral thing on the shows of, like, when they get arrested or might have to go to jail, and, we, and you touched on the Teresa stuff. But you had a quote from Jen Shaw in the piece where she explained her job to you before the arrests and the allegations and now we're like what is her actual job I mean what was it like speaking to Jen um, I know you got some insight into season two as well um a bit well she did lie to my face that was sort of the thing that I, like very casual <laughs> like afterward I was like okay like that this makes perfect sense because she lied about something she didn't need to lie about she lied with such ease and flow and it was just something that she didn't need to lie about like I all the women you know I I asked them questions about production and you know contracts and stuff like that and some of them just answered some of them answered but they're like you know off the record some of them said you know I'm I'm just not allowed to talk about that and then some of them were like you'll have to wait and see but Mm -hmm. as far as I know nobody else lied to me but I said, are you filming? And she said, no. And she was like, it was just, it was so weird. And then there was a thing during the conversation where I was like, oh, she's just not totally tuned into reality because I was like, 
you know, how are you and Heather doing? Have you spoken? And she's sort of like, no, we haven't really had a lot of contact yet. And basically she was like, you know, we need to have a conversation because she sort of owes me an apology. And I was like, Jen, like, I was like, Heather was <laughs> such a good friend to you last season. Like, I was like, you slapped her hand. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you, I, but I did say, I was like, but I know you've got years to make this right. And, you know, and I did not know that she may be in federal prison. Um, <laughs> Those years will be, <laughs> yes, could be over a phone line in jail, maybe <laughs> allegedly, who knows? I love how you like as a normal sane human being who saw the show wanted to be like, that's not how it works. But as a journalist, <laughs> you had to be like, mm hmm. No, I said it. I, oh, did I, you? <laughs> I literally was like, I really think you should make up with her. I think it's like, I, I was like, I like, well, because it's like, as um, Candy Burris said, it's like, you know, there are little friends in our minds. And so like, yeah. I'm like, I'm a feel involved with their relationships, even though like, I don't know them or their business. <laughs> but there was a lot, this kept happening where I would be about to make a declarative statement about them. And then I was like, I don't know them. So I'd be like, it seems like based on what you do on TV, like, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, Jen told me about her, um, her business. It's direct response marketing. They used to do a lot of print <laughs> ads and then they moved over to digital. Um, so it's infomercials and direct mail. Um, yeah. Like, obviously I did I not know that it was like part of a, you know, an alleged scam. But when she was an FBI talking, sting, they probably right. had your phone line tapped. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm sure they're listening to this, Connor, by the way. Um, but I was like, by the end of the conversation, I was like ready to like invest. I was like, wow, Jen, you're so smart. Like, <laughs> wow, that's so funny. Yeah. She said that's that they, so interesting. she said that they filmed a lot of it. Cause I was like, you know, I didn't know until the reunion. Cause I had been so concerned during the season I literally looked up Coach Shaw's salary because he's um <laughs> he's a football coach, you know, at a at a university, and so that's that's public information. So he made four hundred thousand dollars in nineteen or uh, twenty nineteen, and Ooh. then I'm sort of like doing the math. I'm like, you can't wear like all Gucci if you're only yeah. making four hundred grand a year. Um, but then when she explained it at the reunion, I was like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit better about these data systems. But it turns out shouldn't have <laughs> and you there's a, a quote from a source in the piece saying that it will be heavily the, the kind of arrest stuff and the allegations will be a big feature of season two i mean did they go into anything else but season two was it just that kind of be on the lookout kind of thing you know they were filming when she was arrested and she seems to very much still be a part of the mix right wow. like we're seeing oh on instagram yeah. so yeah um, and she wanted to film. And I don't know if you listened to um, the legal proceedings. Um, <laughs> I, I read the notes, but I didn't quite, I didn't tune in. <laughs> yeah. Her, like nobody said, the judge didn't say you can't film. Yeah. So, I mean, if she were my client, I would not recommend <laughs> that she do that. But I, I don't know. Like it, I, I'm, I think if you're the kind of person who uh, is allegedly involved in what she was involved with or, or who is involved with what she was allegedly involved with, you can probably think that you can like talk your way out of any situation. Yeah. I mean, she, like, as you say, she lied to you on the phone. So God only knows. Oh my God. That is so interesting. Um, Dallas has had an interesting season. You mentioned Brandy and Tiffany Moon there. You know, they, you could tell COVID impacted that show in a big way. And then the inclusion of Tiffany Moon was a big step forward for that show. And I think for Bravo's kind of housewives shows in general, but Tiffany Moon did end up having to 
spend a lot of time explaining racism away. I felt she didn't have to. What was it like speaking to her on the phone? Because there's a brilliant bit in the piece where she talks about Brandy's racist video and says like, you know, she's not that bright and she thought it was funny. I wasn't going to crucify her for it. I just love how she point blank was like, Brandy's an idiot. Anyway, what was Tiffany like to speak to and what did you learn chatting to her? Well, I talked to her right after the episode where she um, left the Austin vacation Mm -hmm. kind of in the middle of the night aired. So she was upset. Um, I understand that that happens a lot um, where people will have a bad episode or something they feel uncomfortable with will happen during filming and then they'll kind of get over it, but then they watch it and people will react to it and then they'll kind of get upset again. Um, So I talked to her while she was very much in the throes of that, but even it's so funny, like these women are undergoing this trauma and they're doing it kind of on behalf of Bravo so that Bravo can integrate their shows and they're doing it on behalf of the audiences and so that people can see real stuff, but it is, it comes at a cost. Those lessons are being learned at their expense. And it it's really hard to watch sometimes. And I'm, I'm sure much, much, much harder to live through. Um, but even she and Leva, who, when I spoke to, got, you know, were upset about what had happened. I was like, well, you know, so you're not going to come back next season. And they're both like, yeah, no, I'll probably come back. Just dealing with Brandy, um, and her ignorance. Um, it was interesting. I spoke to um, Lorraine Houghton Lawson, who is an executive producer of Potomac in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to her about sort of the level of discourse and the difference that there is in it, you know, because do they talk about race on Jersey ever? It's, I feel like it's sort of like COVID where it's just sort of like, it's just not even a topic of conversation. Um, yeah. And then sort of like this basic kind of thing where it's like you can't even believe that you have to say it but it's like you know brandy you're not allowed to like mock asian people like that's not okay but then they're Mm -hmm. having on like you know potomac and atlanta they're having these incredibly nuanced conversations they're talking about racism they're talking about colorism they're talking about yeah activism and so when i spoke with lorraine she said uh basically that that is just part of these women's lives. She said it's a regular Tuesday in their lives to sit around and have those conversations. So where other people may be a little more clueless or have the affordability to be more clueless, that's not the reality of walking in a black woman or, you know, woman of color shoes every day. So basically it's just sort of like they're able to be like literally clueless and these other people aren't. And so like it's part of their lives. And so it's part of the show because part of their plot line because the plot line is them that's interesting and what was it like talking to kind of production people and executives were they forthcoming or were they you know afraid to give you the tea because in a way they're often behind the scenes but they probably know more than anybody about what goes on well there are certain things that they can't people can't talk about on the record like they're not Mm -hmm. supposed to talk about contracts like that's like a big thing um but i found them to be so interesting and forthcoming um one of my favorite people who i spoke with was alex baskin who produces vanderpump rules oc and beverly hills i mean he's obviously just such like a fan of the show and but like you know, he had to deal with the whole fallout from Vanderpump Rules, which I think really was the start of um, this profound shift at Bravo, where they sort of started to be like, wow, we can't just not air stuff or not talk about this stuff. We actually have to 
address this stuff. Um, so Stasi Schroeder and um, Kristen Doty had gone on a podcast in 2018 and talked about how they had called the cops on Faith Stowers, who in one of Jax Taylor's many indiscretions had slept with allegedly while she was caring for a 90-year-old oh woman. God. That storyline on Pump Rules, when I when they first aired that, I was like, and there was an old lady asleep in the room? And that was, yeah, because Faith was one of those characters who she was in her early seasons. She came back for that story arc and she kind of, she stood out up here in one way just because she was one of the only black characters mm-hmm. on that show, which is set in a very like diverse part of the US, but is very homogenous looking in terms of how it's cast. So right, it did, like, there was something about Stasi and Kristen bragging about that and effectively mm. bragging about treating a black woman that way that just, I actually had missed that story when it, when it happened because there's other Stasi things that when they had happened and the show had addressed before, I always thought, you didn't handle this right. And when they came back up last year, I thought, well, actually, yeah, like, this I knew about, but you still fucked it up. But that I had missed because I don't follow some of the Pump Rules drama as closely, but I was really shocked when I heard about that. I was amazed how it had not been a bigger deal at the time. Well, that's what happened with production. They were like, we don't listen to like every podcast they go on. So we had no idea that it happened. And they only found out about it when Faith did an IG Live and was like, this happened to me and it was really fucked up. And because mm-hmm. the show wasn't in production, because all of Lisa's restaurants were closed for COVID, it wasn't like they could deal with it on the show, which is normally how a lot of those things play out. You know, they Mm -hmm. like to kind of see what happens and let the cast react to those sort of things um, and let the audience react to those things and see kind of like whether, okay, is this something they can learn from? Is this something they should be punished for? Is this, you know, whatever it is. But in this case, because COVID was roaring and there was no end in sight. It was just like, well, we have to do something, especially since they had just gone through another racism scandal with the two new cast members, Brett and Max, who had both used the N-word all over the place on Twitter. So yeah, they they let them go. And then, you know, a little while later, they let Jax go and Brittany kind of went with him. And now they have totally changed the way that they um, vet people. They were like, yeah, we didn't even used to do like criminal background checks, which I guess is how like Jax wound up on the show. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, like now they're like literally going back through and like searching and they're like, uh, like, like what's another w- way some racist person might spell the N word that we should look up? Like literally oh they're, they're doing like misspellings of slurs because that's what you need to do. I think people are don't want to see as um Alex Baskin, he said, it's increasingly a fine line to walk because I think the audience has been really clear that they do expect us to take some accountability for the people that we have on air. And it isn't acceptable for us to just say, well, no, we're just the observers. So Alex Baskin's or Baskin works for the production company that does Pump Rules, but you mentioned he also works, you know, on, the, on the, with the company that does OC. And obviously the conversation around Kelly Dodd is brought up in your piece and Andy Cohen seems sort of split on it in a way. And she seems to have gotten maybe more of a free pass, but then at the reunion, you know, she wasn't given a free ride either. What was that Kelly Dodd conversation like to have with these people? Because it does seem to be a, an interesting one. Well, Kelly was interesting because when I spoke with him, Kelly had, you know, kind of gone toe-to-toe with Andy at the reunion. And Mm -hmm. then she obviously, I don't know, obviously, she seemed to be in fear for her job. So she was very contrite on, you know, social and did some interviews. 
And then she seemed a little bit more secure in her job. So then she started making demands, like saying, like, I'm not coming back if, if you know, Bronwyn's coming back. And so like throughout that whole process, like, you know, what happens um, is that the executive who's in charge of communications spends a lot of time dealing with these women. And so like somebody will like say something and then, or they'll tweet in, you know, an emotional state. And then there's the mistake, there's the doubling down, there's the apologizing, there's the blaming Bravo. So like, there's like this, you know, it's like the whatever stages of grief, but it's the stages of like being an idiot when you're on, when you're a Bravo star. And then they go to Bravo and they say like, like, oh no, like I'm getting all this like, you know, backlash, please help me. And it's like, you did this, babe. And so when I talked to Andy about Kelly, it was, you know, because I said like, you know, you had just written Reboot when somebody was talking about the OC. And obviously now they're taking a pause while they figure out their season and collect data. Um, But, you know, Andy did say that Kelly's views are indicative of like many conservative people's views, especially in the place where she lives. And then there were people saying, like, you know, you should cancel OC. And Andy's like, I don't want to cancel OC. You know, like, OC is the, it's our longest running housewife show. It's our flagship housewife show. It was his first housewife show. And it's that, and housewives are kind of what made him. So I think he has this yeah. emotional attachment to it. And he said, you know, the season got shut down by COVID four times. And he said, wow. the season in itself was a decent to good season. He said, and the reunion was great, which, I definitely agree with the second part. How did, because I actually remember, like I didn't, it's hard for me to sometimes grasp it because I don't live in the US and it's like I can watch all the shows I want, but like I'm not impacting the ratings. So it's like, it is what it is. But I did get the impression that OC rated decently considering. And like, did that mm-hmm. come up when you spoke to them about market research that the show was actually still doing okay despite a, a very particular season, even just in terms of how they filmed, regardless of the quality of the storytelling? Ratings were down. Okay. And he said, and he said, there's going to be some tinkering. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they probably don't even fully know yet, do they? Like oh, no, probably... of course not. I think what I'm, my, my understanding is that they're collecting, um, Dave and his team are collecting data and, and data from Nielsen and their own, you know, internal data. And he said, you know, when he said reboot, he said, that could mean anything. He said, that could mean let's do MAGA housewives. Like, like I don't, oh. do you guys know what MAGA is? I don't know. Like, if that's yes. a, oh, unfortunately, the idea. unfortunately. It's MAGA housewives already. They don't need to fucking call it that. Oh, my <sighs> God. <laughs> I know. But I, I think what he was saying is it's not necessarily like we're going to make it less conservative because that's what people were pushing back on. He's. I think that there are some personnel issues which are apparent to to everybody so yep you mentioned there the data and that actually comes up in the piece and i thought that was so interesting how much market research goes into real housewives as a phenomenon because obviously it means a lot financially to the network and to nbc universal and how there are mid-season audits taken of where the shows are ratings wise and how customers are testing and how they'll look at configurations of people and how they connect and you made this really interesting point about how when countess luan was being too countessy we got the infamous shot of her falling into a bush drunk that they know when to like bring people down to earth and, and put the viewers on side. Did anything about that surprise you or were you kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Like it obviously has a lot of data behind it. That made sense to me. I didn't realize how much data there was, but one of the most interesting things that had never occurred to me um, to think about was like, you know, they had said like Portia didn't test well in her early seasons, you know, Luann mm-hmm. didn't test as well in her early seasons, but they 
are so smart. It's sort of like this like marriage of like science and art with the numbers and then these like creative people who are making these shows where mm -hmm. they can look at somebody who's not testing well, but being like, okay, we can sort of see where your life is going and we know that things are going to get interesting and that you will test well later. Like with Portia, yes. we didn't speak specifically about her relationship with Cordell, but she didn't test well early on. But I think they could see like, okay, like this relationship is in trouble. Like there, there are things that are going to happen in the next two seasons. Like it's like they can predict people's lives, you know, like they, it's like they know people are going to get divorced before they do. So it's like, <laughs> you know, they, again, they didn't speak specifically about this, but you know, Luann and Tom, that season was unbearable, so horrible, but you knew it was going like, to just implode and that that would yeah. be interesting. And so they're just, they're just geniuses it's just incredible that's actually interesting because i was thinking that because if it was too data driven it wouldn't be fun to watch so it's interesting that they're both doing the numbers to make sure things are on the right track but also they're kind of trust i mean and people mock reality tv for being staged or being trashy mm -hmm. but that they're actually trusting the process and the storytelling enough to say but also if we stick with it the audience will change that's very interesting because when i saw the data stuff i thought jesus but do they not allow for the fact that it's not scripted because if you were writing a scripted show and you're like this storyline's trash take it out you could re-engineer like that but as you say with people's real lives you are kind of you have to let it happen as well you do have to let it happen and i don't know they're they they know that like when people go through things the audience likes them more so whether that's the you know the other housewives kind of giving them shit like when they first come on or, or whether it's just sort of like a, a life thing that happens that, you know, they, a humbling, you know, like with like Karen Huger, that sort of, they, he said that that was, I think, part of why it was so tough for Leva and Dr. Moon to kind of like have these waiting conversations, because he says that audiences don't feel that they've earned the right to participate in the weighty conversations or even in the drama until they've kind of gone through something, which is why I think it's so complicated to have the weight of these, you know, co huge conversations about race and humanity and social issues on the shoulders of these new cast members who, who aren't beloved yet. I, that's such a good point, because in a way, the reason part of the reason Porsche's journey with activism resonates is we have really, we have grown yes. up watching her effectively, not grown up as in our age, but we've grown with her as viewers of her arc. So that's so interesting. And that leads me to Atlanta, which, you know, ends up being the focus of your piece. There was amazing photography from mm. the filming of this season's reunion. I don't know, you probably weren't there for the photographs, were you? I wasn't, but it was like, it was the dream of the photo department and nerd magazine. Like you'd love to do a reunion, but there wasn't one scheduled for our time frame. And mm -hmm. then it just like everything came together. And it was like, not only are they filming the Atlanta reunion, like right when we need them to, they didn't film in Atlanta. They filmed in New Jersey, which is very close ah. to New York. So everything mm -hmm. wound up just like being perfect. And then obviously they looked so gorgeous. And yeah, but that was, that wound up being a, a big surprising part of the piece. Um, I, First, I think Kenya was the first housewife I spoke with, and she was so sweet. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, just such a doll. And, you know, her she was having nanny issues. And so, you know, Brooklyn was kind of toddling around, and she was interacting with Brooklyn. She's obviously, I don't know, but I, this is what I keep saying. It's like, not obviously. She seems like a good mother. She like seems mm -hmm. like a really sweet person, and that she really loves her daughter. It's, it was very sweet to hear. Um, 
But I had one of the things that had bothered me so much about this season was when Kenya questioned um, Portia's activism and implied that she was getting arrested, you know, for the cameras. And I was like, why is this not sitting right with me? Because it really was, I thought, nasty. And I'm like, well, you know, Portia's said that, you know, Kenya's boobs are fake and her ass is fake and her relationship is fake. I'm like, mm-hmm. what's, you know, wh- why is this hitting so different? Um, and it was um, uh, Cynthia. Cynthia wound up telling me, which Cynthia was very wise, by the way. I loved Cynthia. She was one of the most insightful people I spoke with. But Cynthia mm-hmm. said, you know, it's funny shade when you question someone's body or relationship or whatever. She's like, it's not funny to question that because it's something we're all going through and it's very real. Um, yeah. But when I did bring it up to Kenya, she said, well, it kind of sucks that that was all that aired. She's like, because the reason why I said that was because Portia had on a text chain with Marlo, Tanya, RIP, and Nini. Um, <laughs> Goodbye, Tanya. Goodbye, Tanya. Bye, bye. <laughs> I missed her. I liked her. I know. Good, me too. Good Canadian vibes. Um, <laughs> but they had complained about something that Candy had done. And so that was the first time I'd heard about it. And I was like, oh, well, what did Candy do? And she's like, well, Candy was trying to make internal changes at NBC that, you know, increased parity and, and elevated the, you know, status of Black people at the network. And so I was like, huh. And so I started poking around about it. And yeah, eventually, I wound up asking Candy about it. And Candy was shocked that I knew about it because... <gasps> She, because it was a private communication between her and her boss, the woman, um, Sherry Levine, who runs the network and they call Mm -hmm. her the grand dame of Bravo. Um, I I loved her. She's so just, she, she's not the kind of person who you think would run a reality network. She's, she's like a, she sounds like a liberal arts, like gender studies professor. She's just like, (laughs) So called and smart and like amazing and wonderful. Um, although most of the people I spoke with were incredibly smart and, and fascinating. But she had gone to her after the murder of George Floyd and, and you know, the kind of blossoming of the Black Lives Matter movement. And she t- talked about some questions or uh, she talked about some changes that she'd like to see uh, at Bravo. And, mm-hmm. you know, Sherry, you know, immediately started talking with her and talked about the changes that they were already making and then what she could do to address Candy's concerns. And um, Giselle Bryant um, also went to her and uh, went to Sherry Levine and talked about similar things and how to elevate Black voices and how to give, you know, more spots to Black kids from colleges who, you know, want internships and you know, having black owned companies, production companies, because while there were um, many black people who worked at the production companies, there were no black owned production companies until the race in America special. And normally, so I was like, you know, I asked Sherry, did, is this the kind of thing that people usually come to you with? And she's like, no, like the housewives are coming to me to be like, uh, can you not air this thing that I said? Or, you know, yeah. she said that, um, when Cynthia launched her sunglasses line, she was like, "Do you want some sunglasses?" You know, she like. <laughs> I mean, it, I'd like that. I'd like that call as well. I would, that's a different call. <laughs> would love would love to get the call or some Bailey wines. Um, but she's like, "Yeah, normally people are not like calling me to be like, how can we restructure, you know, Bravo to to have more yeah. racial parity?" Which is, and it's very cool that 
she was doing that. Um, but apparently Portia was upset that um, she had gone to Sherry alone and she felt that um, Candy should have involved everybody, Yeah, which I understand, but also you're allowed to have a you know private conversation with your boss too. Yeah, there's kind of a... a, a, a it's a little bit of a double-sided thing in a way. I'd say it sounds like the Atlanta cast were trying to act in unison on certain things for a strength in numbers kind of thing and to be transparent with each other. But also, I just got the impression from how this came up in your article and how we know Candy is, you know, a, a businesswoman in a great way, that she was like, I understand the corporate side and yes. what this will mean. I'll just say this to a person one-on-one as a thing that I'd like to mention. And I... It strikes me that Canny was not trying to go behind the back of her cast members, but that they took it up the wrong way. And it does seem from your piece ended up on the blogs and in the Housewives drama in a kind of in a roundabout way. It seems like that didn't connect. So what was it like seeing that unfold and what did unfold? Because it sounds like you kind of inadvertently had a little mini kind of Housewives drama happen because of your piece. I want to be brought up on the show as a blogger. I want them to be Yes, like, the blogger. blogs, honey, the blogs. <laughs> um, so I had asked Portia to participate in the piece. I think that, I think she's the greatest current housewife. Um, and I... So I was very eager to speak with her, even like she was on my first list where I was like, here are the people I want to talk to. Porsche's at the very top of my list. But then especially mm-hmm. when I found out about this, I was like, well, I really need to talk to her. Of course. So um, through Bravo, she received three interview requests. And then after I had all this information, I sent her a list of everything about her that was going to be in the story. And then mm-hmm. some very detailed questions because I want everybody to have the opportunity to tell their side of the story. Um, yeah. It's really not fair if other people get to tell your story for you. And Mm -hmm. so she declined to do it, which, you know, is her right. But then she was upset when the story came out and she was like, why? Basically, she felt like the story was, you know, damaging the movement and kind of like talking about the wrong things. And then so she said she was doing an IG live. I thought it was going to be about Bolo. (laughs) She's like, (laughs) Which fair. We would have all thought that. (laughs) Right. Because she was like, everyone's been asking about this for a long time and I'm finally coming clean. And so I thought that it was going to be about Bolo. And frankly, I thought that it was going to be about Bolo to kind of distract from the story because some people had sort of said like, oh, like this contextualizes Kenya's, like the things that Kenya said about her. Like, and so this was a little bit more complicated than we thought, but nope. Um, She had taken issue with the story, but not really with anything that I said, you know, like it, cause nothing was inaccurate, but basically just the way that the other women had characterized it. And Portia said that after, because they had filmed a scene where Candy confronted Portia about these text messages where she was mad about Candy doing this stuff. Cause she's like, you know, I don't understand. Like, if we're all helping the movement in our own way, like why are you mad that I went to the network and tried to make these changes? And of course, as we know, Portia wanted to do things together. Um, And so after they filmed this scene, Portia on her IG live said that she went to um, production and said, please don't put what we just shot in the show. And um, I had spoken with Bravo earlier and Sherry Levine had said like, you know, people will come up to us all the time and ask us not to air stuff. And we do not make a habit of um, uh, 
approving those requests. Yeah, because so. if they did tech, use in normal circumstances, they would have nothing. Because you could argue, don't show that. Oh my God, I had a stray hair. Oh, don't show <laughs> that. I was like, I look bloated. Like you would have no show. You would literally have nothing. But yeah, she said basically that it wasn't included because so much of it was about stuff that happened off screen. Like it's about text yeah. messages. It's about an email to the network. It's about, and she was just like, it didn't make any sense. Like it was just incomprehensible. Not because the women were not like, you know, making sense. It's inside baseball. Isn't yeah. it? It's very specific to the show and production. And there is still this thing. Like I know Beverly Hills has broken the fourth wall more than other mm. franchises, but there's still a thing where they're avoiding having producers be a character on the show where possible. So I, I would have liked to see it on the show because I think yeah. it's actually a very nuanced, specific thing that you've teased out really well in the piece. And I know you published a clarification in an updated version on the online edition. So that's in there. But like, I think to try and explain it in the context uh. of the show would be a lot of legwork as well. Like you could see like, how do you cut that together? What do you flash up on screen? Like, yeah, it's a funny one. It's like, it's really juicy, but also it's like, how do you fit that into the show? Totally, because on Beverly Hills, it's like, the, that was so much focused on Denise's off-screen action, but it's like, all you had to do was get Brandy Glanville on there to be like, yeah, I fucked, you know, I fucked her. <laughs> and then it's like, great. So now it's I licked her beep and her beep and her beep. <laughs> <laughs> but like this one, it's like, I mean, who's going to gack that out? It's like, it's so... It's like the like board like from Homeland where Carrie Matheson is like plotting out the you know the terrorist <laughs> attack. It's it's, it's 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 too complicated. Yeah, it's interesting though because you did, as you mentioned, Atlanta became a huge part of this piece. It's in, the piece kind of kicks off with you talking about Southern Charm, but then as we go through it, it does become very much about Atlanta because they addressed BLM in a much more, I guess organic and also like intentional way because of how it impacted the characters but what was it like getting to chat to the cast members so you spoke to candy kenya and cynthia i mean i thought cynthia's stuff about the couches and the dynamics Mm. of you don't ever want to be at the front you want to be in the middle i thought that was so interesting and also very cynthia i was like i can fully see (laughs) that makes so much sense that cynthia would be like oh i don't want to be at the front (laughs) nope well cynthia like the amount of intention and thought that she puts into everything was just so remarkable to me because Mm. i think of cynthia generally just when i if you think of Cynthia like not wanting to be in the hot seat, you're sort of like, oh, Cynthia's being conflict avoidant. But it's not just that she doesn't want to be in the hot seat. She doesn't want to be at the far end either because that means she didn't do enough. Cynthia is yes. a very smart and savvy person. And, you know, because we were talking about like Black Lives Matter being such a big part of the show. And she was talking about how she had um, intentionally threaded, not Black Lives Matter, but just sort of she had threaded um conversations about race in the show in these very subtle ways where she was almost trojan horsing in social issues just like through stuff that she thought would be interesting on the show um and one of the things that she mentioned was noelle her daughter going to college and she said you know that was something that was really important to me to show because it was like it was a young black woman going to a great college and just setting that example and never even mentioning that, never saying that explicitly, yes. but just modeling it silently, but then thinking like, oh, it'll be fun. I'll be there with my ex who, you know, people are still shipping and then them yeah. with Noel, and it'll just be cute. But then she said that the experience of filming that actually wound up having the opposite effect for Noel, And that was part of the reason why she wound up leaving because she didn't have a normal experience. She showed up with a camera crew. And so she wasn't just a regular college student. She was like kind of a little celebrity. 
And yeah. so this thing that she had done to like uplift black people and model black excellence wound up kind of kind of stymieing her own daughter's growth in that world, although she's clearly doing great now. But it, yeah, the unintended consequences of trying to do the right thing. Uh, that was that's so interesting. And it's interesting that she I mean, I know Housewives by definition and what makes them work on these shows is that they're an open book. But like, that's a very nuanced and honest thing to tell a journalist who, you know, that's not on the show. So like, it's interesting that she's that self-aware and also that kind of like self-reflective, I suppose. I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah, I just loved her. Like one of the things that we talked about that was so interesting because we talked a lot about her wedding, but you know, which was allegedly... Not her most self-aware moment, I will say that. No, she really (laughs) wanted to have a big wedding during a pandemic (laughs) on 10, 10, 20. Um, But allegedly no one got COVID, which is so wonderful. Um, Mm -hmm. But one thing that she said that was so interesting is that she said that she was really touched because... um, the women showed up even though they weren't filming. And so they didn't have to. It wasn't a work obligation. It was just them coming. And that meant a lot to her. And it like we kind of had this like realization at the same time where it's like, you know, like, oh, if it had been a work obligation, they would have been obligated to have a fight at her wedding. You know? Yeah, I, yeah. Because they, yeah, anytime that there's a group setting, there has to be some sort of conflict. You can't just have a thing where there's no conflict or there's no show. And so because it wound up not being filmed, she she got to have a real wedding, which is, and I don't know, and her friends just got to be her friends and not her, her striving, you know, colleagues. I mean, you spoke to Giselle from Potomac, and I think that's interesting because they had such a great season five it's by the fact like they held off and airing it and when they did air it i think it just had this like breakthrough moment with a kind of a new swath of viewers and there's talk of them moving season six up earlier in terms of when it debuts i mean did giselle talk about how the show seemed to just take off last year or did, like what did she tell you i mean it was obviously a great season i mean we're losing monique which is unfortunate but mm-hmm. i found it so interesting because giselle there okay so there are different ways that the housewives can ostracize someone and like mm-hmm. one of the ways that they can ostracize them is obviously just by not inviting them to something like you know when sonia wasn't invited to the berkshires um yes. but basically uh Giselle and Robin were so upset by Monique's behavior because they just felt like they're like we're trying to comport ourselves on TV and model this behavior a certain way and like be aspirational black women who you know they don't always behave well but they certainly are in control of themselves and she's like they just felt like she had like in five minutes just ruined this impression that they were trying to create or not create, but, Mm -hmm. but to uphold and the kind of people who they were. And so they wanted to have the footage of her attacking Candace removed. And when that wasn't possible, they were like, fine, fuck it. We're just going to, you know, Giselle was like, I'm just going to make her look like a dangerous asshole. So she hired a bodyguard. And when, whenever they were filming together, she had this gigantic bodyguard around because she, she wanted to telecast like, this is a dangerous woman. And so Monique, I think knew, and it was Monique's choice to leave the show. They wanted her to stay, but she knew like, okay, if I'm going to be on air, I'm going to, I'm not going to come across. Well, I'm going to come across as they're constantly going to be bringing up my violent episode they're constantly going to be treating me like I'm a threat like why what what benefit is there for me to be on the show um and I thought that that was a really interesting and clever way I think Giselle's like a genius 
Um, and I'm so torn now because in yeah. a way that's the kind of genius manipulation I love from a reality TV star, but also <laughs> I'm so torn because in a way I completely, I can see where just a, a, a caveat, I'm a, a fucking white person talking about this, so I'm, mm-hmm. I could, I could fully get this wrong, but I do find it interesting when people kind of turn on other people within the same group and say, you are letting the side down and the right. respectability politics comes in because what Monique did was not in any way cool. But I also at times felt like Giselle and Robin's insistence that she was therefore bringing down black women around the world and on television felt a little bit unfair because you're on a franchise that particularly cities that are mainly white cast, people have done as bad and not worse. And no one's ever said Teresa Giudice is bringing down right. the reputation of Italian Americans <laughs> countrywide. So, in, in an odd way, I can understand and respect their stance, but also it feels a little bit unfair in a way. And then to hear that she very intentionally was like, "I'm icing this girl out," is, ooh, I mean, I'm like, I don't know how to feel about that, you know? Well, I asked specifically about that. I said, "Why is mm-hmm. Teresa Giudice different from?" Monique like (laughs) and she said the difference for me with everything that I've seen on Bravo I've never seen a woman for no reason hold on to a woman's head and start beating her and it takes six people to make her stop I've never seen that on Bravo and I've watched Bravo forever um she said it's different and it cannot be compared to other franchises so she just felt like you know Teresa flipping a table or I guess I don't know like Jen Shaw splashing water on expensive camera equipment or slapping uh, Heather's hand. I I think she just felt like, and I think it's fair to say based on Monique saying afterward, you know, like, Oh my God, I just blacked out. I had no idea. She was not in control in that moment. Not that Teresa was in control, but um, But Monique fully, I mean, they, they, and you know, on kind of every side of that conversation. So they all kind of said, the light went out in your eyes you just went to a completely different place and she said that herself you know so that's true god that's that's this is why we watch these fucking shows though isn't it like this is the shit and it's so funny because people are so like and they're just this and it's such a bad example and i'm like are you having this fucking nuanced conversation about like the property brothers i don't think so like you know like it's just a little bit like this is oh my god like i mean we have gone through the roll call of names you got to speak to for this piece both talent and people behind the scenes but obviously Andy Cohn was a big part of your article and in terms of Bravo he takes up such an interesting space because he is a TV host of a show that features all the housewives he does all the reunions across multiple different shows not just housewives and also he has a production background and he's a celebrity what was it like to chat to Andy and what's he like to interview because I feel like he knows an interviewer wants but also he's a producer and he's probably not going to give you everything or you feel like he won't give you everything. I felt like Andy was really candid. I mean, Andy's the one who told me that none of the, um, the, <laughs> the husbands ha- uh, have contracts or get paid. And wow. you know, they're, they're like, please don't talk about contracts. Andy, like you can't. Andy's like, hold my purse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that he has a purse, you know, a metaphorical purse, his earrings, his metaphorical earrings. Andy was holding <laughs> literal matches. Andy was like, he was lighting a candle and then he was just lighting matches for fun. He was like, he, he was bopping around the whole conversation. He's, he's like always in movement. And I think he yeah. genuinely, he was like, I think about 
cast switches we can make when I'm at the gym. He's like, I think about it all the time. He's like, I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, I think he genuinely loves, like he said, it's like a chess game. He said, he called it compared to a soap opera. So it's like, these are real people to him. They're, you know, his friends, like five of them through his baby shower, but they're also, you know, like they're characters on a chessboard. There are people to be moved around. And then he thinks about like, okay, if I took this one out, like how will it impact the other cast members? How will it impact the the ratings? How will it impact the viewers? How will it impact, you know, he said the camera people. And there are certain people, because I'm just like, how can you have Michael Darby there? And it's just like, well, like Michael Darby is Ashley's husband. Like that's providing a storyline that as long as Ashley's on the show, he's on the show. And also he's, he's friends with those men. He's friends with the other husbands the same way that Mark Daly, Kenya's, um, you know, estranged. I, I think they're estranged at this point. Husband is really close with Todd. It's like they're yeah, they're yeah. genuine relationships. And Andy, I don't know. I think he genuinely delights in the gossip of this. It's like real life gossip. And like. He's both removed from it, but like integrally involved with it. And I, I, th- I think he really loves his job and loves himself and is a very content person in this just, you know, muck and goo. It's funny, too, because you mentioned there their soap operas and he has often said that he grew up on, you know, the heyday of daytime soaps on American TV. And I would guess like primetime fair like Dallas and Dynasty and even Dallas the Housewives show reference the iconic show Dallas this season like for a bunch of episodes it, like in a weird way his journey of working behind the scenes for for decades on TV and then becoming front of camera is not a million miles from what the Housewives go through who are often people with status or wealth or success yeah. in one field who then step into a public arena so maybe he's more closely aligned to the Housewives than we think because in a way they joke he's Daddy Andy and he's the boss but like his trajectory is not far off a Bethany or a Nini or an LVP I think that's right and I think that but I think that he's he's like them and I think that he does socialize with them and he's also like the executives where he's making these decisions he's an executive producer on the housewife shows but not on the the other series like he he didn't mm-hmm. he wasn't part of the the you know the firings at Vanderpump rules um yeah. but he's also an audience surrogate like he's yeah. he, I mean he's literally asking the questions that you know people are tweeting at him and stuff but I think I I suspect that part of the reason why he went from behind the scenes to on camera was because he's a true fan and actually wanted to know that stuff and to like ask those questions. And like the, you know, you can't, if you're an executive producer or an executive at a network, it would be kind of weird and rude to ask those things of people. But I think that Andy was like genuinely asking those questions about whether people's boobs are fake or whether someone's marriage (laughs) is real. And so they're like, great, put this on TV. Perfect. Now we have, I mean, we have gone in on your your thoughts on the show, but there are some format questions that I know because you've listened to this podcast, you are, Mm. you actually, in fact, (laughs) have asked for like pointers on how to answer these. So I know you're ready to play. I'm ready. But first, so I have to ask as a longtime Housewives fan, I'm dying to know what would your tagline be? I can dish it, but I can't take it. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that would be amazing for like the most mundane to the most serious stuff. They'd be like, oh, I can't take that. And it's like ordering something at dinner. And you're like, I can't take that. That is amazing. You had that. Re- is that one that you've rehearsed on my behalf or just have always kind of thought would be your tagline? Mm, I thought about it when I was writing this story because I was just, mm-hmm. well, basically I thought about it because I was like, I'm asking these women these questions and to answer for these things. And like, they've given me so much and I've seen them on TV and I've made judgments about them. And I was just thinking about how like thin skinned I am and how I just like, I'm like, I don't want any scrutiny. So I was, I was thinking about like Portia kind of like talking about my article and, and, um, I was like, I was like, no, no, no. Like, don't, don't say anything about me. I want to say stuff about you. (laughs) So it, it came about while I was doing this, but I did know I was ready with it. I knew I'd be ready for you. From the taglines to another question that I I have a feeling you've prepared for, um, the dinner party, you can have five people over from the Housewives world, can be friends of, the Housewives themselves, boyfriends, side characters, Jen Davis if you want, what five people are you you inviting and why? Um, So I want to do a children of Housewives dinner because I feel like that's, first of all, they're just reasonable people, like I, I'm always yes. shocked by how well adjusted so many of, I mean, clearly not all of them. Um, yeah. But the, I'm just like amazed. I'm like, you grew up with these crazy people and then you also grew up on TV and like you still yeah. seem so sensible. Um, Sonia Morgan's daughter, Quincy. I yes, feel who's, like- yeah, who's recently had an Instagram reveal. She made her Instagram public and went viral overnight because she seems amazing. She seems amazing. And I just feel like having Sonia as a mother and then whatever the hell was going on with Mr. Morgan, I'm very mm-hmm. into. Um, Raven, the daughter of Karen Huger. Um, oh, yes. Yes. She is buddies with Sasha Obama. Oh, yeah. Okay. Get the tea. Yes, absolutely. I want the tea. Noelle. I just love Noelle. And you've, you kind of know her mom a bit now. So you'd be like, I spoke to your mother. <laughs> <laughs> she speaks very highly of oh, you. Oh, yeah. That's a great way to make friends with a teen <laughs> or whatever. It's your 20 year old. It's like, your mom and I talked on the phone. Like, cool. <laughs> she's like, I got to go. <laughs> Bye. Um, I want to hear, I know she's a little young. So this is actually totally unethical, but we're gonna we're gonna fast forward to when Bryn Hoppy is of age. Oh my god! <laughs> I want to hear what it's like Bryn in like ten years time, like a slightly jaded twenty something Bryn. Yes, I think that would be amazing. And Bryn from the future. You you cast a spell and you bring Bryn from the future back to now. Yes, um, <laughs> and then. I love Grace, Giselle Bryant's daughter, but I think I gotta go Cairo because he's he's gorgeous. I just want him at the head of the table. I want I want Sheree's son Cairo. We've all seen a lot of Cairo, but I like to see more. And you could be like, what is it like living in Chateau Sheree? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I hope he doesn't live in Chateau Sheree. He's an adult. Maybe he does. I don't True. know. I don't know. Well, he probably has a spare room there because she's enough space. I hope for like a spare room for the kids. So before we wrap, if people want to check out, obviously they can check out your piece on Housewives on Vulture.com. But if they want to read more of your writing or follow you on social media, where can they do that? My website is AnnaPeel.com. And then my Twitter handle is at BananaPeel, spelled like my last name, P-E-E-L-E. Oh my God, Banana Peel, like that is genius. And of course, the <laughs> Housewives piece is on uh, Vulture.com as well. Anna Peel, this has been... Not to use a cliche, but it has been a journey, but it's been a journey. I'm very happy to go on. Thank you very much for coming on Housewives and Me today. Thank you so much, Connor. This was so much fun. 
That was An Appeal on Housewives and Me. I will link to her piece, The Soul of Bravo, in the, the show notes for this episode. You can check out her website as well. She's written for so many different publications. She's into, I think actually I became aware of Anna when she interviewed Avril Lavigne. So that'll give you an idea of the length and breadth of her, <laughs> of her repertoire as a journalist. That was honestly some of the most fun I've had speaking to someone for the podcast. Anna was sat in her bath talking to me. She fully went there. And and uh, did her gave it her all to give me all those amazing quotes from her piece, which um, just blew my mind. Honestly, it's what Kyle's of a Garcelle, the stuff about Potomac. Oh my god, it was just so interesting. Anyway, thank you again to Anna for coming on, and there are lots more exciting guests coming your way over the next few weeks on the show as well. If you liked what you heard today and you're on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating or a review of the show on the Apple Podcasts app. You can follow the show on places like Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts as well. And do let friends know if you're into Housewives and you think they could be converted to. I have got messages from people who say they like the podcast even though they don't watch Housewives, which still I find fascinating. <laughs> like it must just be like listening to a different language. Anyway... You can find the show on social media at Housewives on Me on Instagram and Twitter. I am on both platforms as well as It's Connor Bean, so you can find me there as well if you like. We'll be back with a brand new episode next Tuesday. Until then, thank you so much for all the support. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.